Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that gets you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by AT&T. I'm Dan Pramack. On today's show, Trump again sticks his Twitter finger into a media merger and big questions about the day's largest IPO. But first, the return of America's digital divide. Now, you might remember the term digital divide. It uh, basically meant that rich people had access to new technologies, particularly the Internet, while poorer people didn't. And so not only did that mean richer people had a better quality of life, you know, what else is new? They also would continue to have a leg up when it came to future jobs since they were the ones more fluent with the sort of gizmos and programs that employers were seeking. You know, so, for example, imagine trying to get a white collar job today or candidly, even most blue collar jobs without knowing how to operate something like a smartphone. Now, that digital divide does seem to have significantly narrowed over the years, but its ripples are still being felt by those in their 30s and 40s and 50s who were on the wrong side of it. And now we might be heading into a brand new digital divide, which is as much about location as it is about income. And it's something that Axios's Kim Hart wrote about this morning on the website, and we'll talk to her soon. So here's how it goes. The idea is that lots of telecom companies want to spend billions of dollars rolling out what they call 5G, which is this super fast network that can enable all sorts of cool things. But almost all of these rollouts are happening in cities, leaving suburbs, exurbs, and certainly rural areas far behind. Why it matters is that in our rush to innovate, we could be creating kind of a new economic underclass and one that either leaves millions of Americans behind or effectively forces them to move into already overcrowded cities. It's this giant problem that both governments and tech companies must be able to see, but so far appear to be ignoring. We're joined by Kim Hart, managing editor of Axios, who this morning wrote about this new growing digital divide. So, Kim, just generally, why is 5G important in terms of what it can do and and maybe more important than, say, 3G or 4G before it? Sure. So 5G is uh, expected to have incredibly fast speeds and much higher capacity for broadband. That means that it will be upwards of 100 times faster than the 4G LTE networks that most of us in cities are familiar with today. That's pretty fast speeds, and that means that it's going to be able to support new applications like virtual reality, augmented reality, even self-driving cars. These are applications that need a continuous super fast bit rate that isn't going to suffer from dropped signals or the signal being uh, weakened by a, a crowded network or maybe interference from trees or buildings. Assuming we got to a 5G rollout, I could be driving my car in and around the city, start heading out an X number of miles out. If that area doesn't have 5G, the autonomous part just doesn't work anymore? It could. I mean, all these systems are still under development. And so a lot of autonomous vehicles are still relying on systems that are internal to to the car. Now, in order to be able to reach this all-connected future that a lot of companies are touting and say that they're working towards, that's going to require almost ubiquitous and super fast and seamless connectivity. That means that you're going to have to have antennas everywhere. When you're dealing, when you're thinking about 5G, 5G characteristics are that it is super fast and super high capacity. In order to reach that, you have to be using really high frequency airwaves. Now I'm thinking about aesthetics. So, you know, I, I think of current, say, tele- telecom towers, which are huge. And every time they get put up somewhere, there's a huge kind of NIMBY fight over it. Are we talking about those or or something smaller here? We're talking about what's called small cells. So these are much smaller antennas, but they range in the size of like a shoebox to a pizza box. And they're going to have to be in a lot of different places, though. So imagine today you have you see these tall cell towers every 
half mile or so if you're living in a more dense area. And you can see them. They're in the air. They're, you know, over buildings. And, and they sometimes uh, try to disguise them, make them look like trees. Exactly. But, but they're not exactly. trees. And they're like, you know, 100 feet off the ground. But with these new 5G airwaves, they only go a couple hundred feet or so, and they're only going to be able to be about 20 feet off the ground. So that means that on bus shelters, on light poles, on buildings, on street signs, you're going to be seeing these like boxes hanging off of these structures. And that's what's going to power these these new networks. You're first talking about rolling out in cities. Is it your feeling that it will start in cities and then start to slowly move out? And if so, how long a process? Could we be talking years and years here? Right. So it'll absolutely start in cities. And even the companies that are building out these networks acknowledge that cities are going to be the first ones to get these networks. And that's pure economics. I mean, think about it. If a big wireless company is spending a couple hundred billion dollars to put out the infrastructure, to make sure they have access to the airwaves from a regulatory auction and are making all of these new equipments across the cities on all of these different structures, that's a really time-intensive and capital-intensive process. So they're going to go to a more dense area, like a city, where there is a higher concentration of customers who are going to be willing to pay for that resulting service. The pay for the resulting service. So you think about a city, and a lot of cities have very high-income people and, and fairly low-income people within the same city, maybe different neighborhoods, but the same city. But you're saying there is still an income piece here. Just because you've got access in theory doesn't mean you've got the money to access it. Right. That's a good point. And so when we're talking about the the digital divide here, there's two digital divides, right? There's a digital divide between rural and urban areas, but there's also a digital divide within urban centers themselves. And that's between, that's really income-based and location-based, as you said before. So just because the equipment is rolled out in a particular area doesn't necessarily mean that a consumer is going to A, have access to devices that are capable of receiving 5G signals, or B, be able to shell out the extra even 10 or $20 a month that it might cost to be able to upgrade to that kind of service. You put in your piece this morning that the FCC chairman said that there's a strong business case for rural 5G networks, things like precision agriculture. It's a great thing to say. Is there any movement or any way you see, I guess, the federal government encouraging that? I don't know if that becomes tax breaks for the companies or something else. Well, look, the federal government has for a while been trying to look into how subsidies can be given to carriers that operate in some of these rural areas to help spur development and give them more access to capital to build out the infrastructure necessary to create these kinds of networks. A lot of rural networks are taking advantage of 4G networks now, but it took a lot longer for those networks and that technology to get to rural areas than cities, which have been enjoying 4G technology for many years now. But there are still some areas that are only able to take advantage of 3G technology. So what you're seeing is kind of this gap of cities are going to continue to move ahead in terms of the type of speeds that they have access to, and rural communities are still going to be lagging behind. Kim Hart, thank you very much. I guess the bottom line here is the future is bright. Right? The future is super fast, at least for some of us. And now my final two. First up, President Trump last night tweeted that it was, quote, sad and unfair and disgraceful that the FCC wouldn't approve a big merger that would see conservative broadcaster Sinclair buy a bunch of local television stations from Tribune, even though the FCC did that because it thinks Sinclair might have lied while seeking approval. Now, look, it should go without saying that this goes into that not normal bucket, as past presidents have rarely weighed in on corporate mergers that don't involve national security. But it's also not really normal for Trump. First, the FCC is run by Ajit Pai, who Trump not only nominated, but someone whose past actions, like killing net neutrality, have been to his liking. 
Second, Trump previously complained about big media getting too big, which seemed to be his official gripe when AT&T bought Time Warner. So here with Sinclair, it's almost as if politics is getting ahead of principle. And finally, Silicon Valley fuel cell maker Bloom Energy today begins trading on the NASDAQ after successfully pricing its IPO. But what Bloom isn't doing is talking about why it gave millions of dollars of shares and loans to a pair of guys who the SEC claims defrauded Bloom investors. Now, we've talked about this before, and you can read more detail on the Axios website, but here's the short version of where we are. The two guys themselves are asking Bloom to let them out of a confidentiality agreement so they can tell what they know. But Bloom won't do it. How that's not a red flag for investors is beyond me. And we're done. Be sure to follow us all day at Axios.com and sign up for my pro rata email newsletter at signup.axios.com. Have a great National Wine and Cheese Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another podcast.